Today's reading is from Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. There are those who do not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives its mark on their forehead or not on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They'll be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And there'll be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives a mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labour, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold in his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charged the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Tape your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. This is the word of the Lord.
My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister. It's lovely to have you with us here this evening. Let's pray for God's help as we work through these words. Father God, how much we need your help. Father, we, we want to know truth. And so we pray that you would help us to, uh, to see past um, shocking language and offence we may feel and help us instead to pursue truth and to long to find it. And most of all, we pray that you would help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly through these words tonight. Amen. Well, if this is your first week at Christchurch Mayfair, you may be wondering what on earth have I walked into tonight? What is this place? And if you are a regular at church and you invited a guest tonight, you are probably thinking, why of all the weeks did I bring somebody this week? Revelation 14. It's judgment, all about judgment. Now, the language in which it's expressed is pretty off-putting. I'm sure you saw that in the reading. It's, it says some shocking things to our ears. But actually, the theme, the, the concept of judgment is a very attractive one. As humans, we want, we need there to be judgment. I'm sure most of us saw the scenes from across the Atlantic earlier this week as we got to the climax of the Derek Chauvin trial. I found it very moving, actually, to, to look outside just before when they knew the verdict was about to be read, and you could almost hear the intake of breath as centuries of, of racial injustice were, were focused in on this one moment, and the crowd were just longing. Will it finally happen? And then the joy and the relief when the former police officer was declared guilty. A sign of, of hope. At the start, people hoped of a long overdue change. And in a broken world like ours, justice is an enormous blessing. It's a wonderful thing. And a, a lack of justice, the absence of justice or justice deferred is a very, very bitter thing to bear. Well, Revelation chapters 14 to 20 is all about justice, judgment. It's a series of overlapping images showing us different perspectives on God's ultimate judgment. And for those who live with the unhealed wound of justice denied, these are going to be wonderfully encouraging chapters. But it's undeniable that for many of us, we will not find them easy. We'll find them uncomfortable to read, painful even. And one reason that uh, we'll feel uncomfortable, well, actually, one reason is I think that for many of us, we, we have fairly secure lives and we find talk of judgment difficult, whereas those who've grown up with great injustice tend not to find it such a struggle. The second reason is that the language, it's just weird, it's awkward, it's, it's offensive in places. Uh, Revelation doesn't deal in literal descriptions as we've seen over the weeks. It, it reveals the spiritual realities behind the scene by using the striking visceral images designed to, to emotionally move us as well as to intellectually inform us. It's, it's almost, I mean, to move from the profound to the banal. It's almost like uh, in a cartoon when Bugs Bunny gets whacked around the head and, you, and the stars sort of circle his head. It's that kind of thing. It's, it, it's imagery to, to help us understand. And we're just not used to that in 21st century London. 
But there is another reason, a third reason, why we find it uncomfortable. And that is that deep down inside, well, there is a a well-suppressed inkling in most of us that come judgment day, we're not going to be spending our whole time sat in the public gallery cheering as oppression and injustice is destroyed and judged by God. Now, the moment will come when each of us will be called down into the dock to face God's judgment for our lives ourselves. And the particular thing we're going to learn about judgment tonight from Revelation 14, the the perspective here is that it is Jesus who is the judge. And it's before Jesus that you will stand one day. He is the fork in the road for all humanity. All of eternity, your entire destiny rests on him. All of us at some point must confront the Lord Jesus Christ. And your eternal destiny determined by how you respond to the challenge, the offer, the person of Jesus Christ. Which way will you go? Now we're going to look um, at the beginning and the end of the passage because in, uh, first, because there we see that John presents us with two very different destinies of humanity. All humanity is heading to one of these two destinies. And then having shown us the two destinies, comes one urgent warning. So firstly, in verses 1 to 5, we see the indescribable joy of the first fruits of redemption. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. You only really get the impact of that when you remember the last two chapters. Chapters 12 and 13, we've seen that Satan, uh, acting through the dragon and the beasts as they're pictured, has been furiously seeking to destroy and to deceive God's people so that they will be taken away from the worship of God and will be judged and destroyed with him instead. And they just seem too powerful to resist when you read the descriptions in chapters 12 and 13. But here, as we see these worshippers gathered in God's heavenly kingdom, you realise the Lamb wins. It's really actually the subtitle for Revelation as a book, The Lamb Wins. Life may be battle now, there may be pain and, and discomfort and much difficulty. But at the end of the day, evil doesn't win. The Lamb wins. Jesus wins. And all those he's set out to save will join him on his heavenly mountain. Those who have his name on their heads, not the name of the beasts. And the number of the saved is 144,000, which doesn't sound like very many when you think about it. But throughout Revelation, you've, you've had one of two ways to describe all of God's people in all of history. Either 144,000 or a countless number, no one, a countless multitude no one could even number. Uh, 144,000, why that number? Well, it's 12 for, uh, and those of you who are into pure maths, don't try and tell me that simple arithmetic doesn't work. This is not for imperial, this is normal people. Well, revelation normal. Uh, 12, 12 tribes of Israel, 12, 12 apostles, uh, 12 times 12, 144, and then 1,000 in in Bible thinking, just a big number. So 144,000, all the people of God, Old Testament, New Testament, and it'll be lots. 
But why does, why does here John go for 144,000 rather than the countless multitude no one could number? I think it's to give assurance. After all we've seen of the brutal persecution, the intimidation, the deception of Satan, we need to know that every single last one of God's people will make it safely home. No one will be lost. None snatched away. No matter how powerful and terrifying the dragon and the beasts are, they cannot snatch one single believer from God's hand. Christians in Pakistan need to hear that today. Did you read a week or so ago the story about the spate of kidnappings of religious minorities, girls from religious minorities, especially Christian girls? It, the article featured um, Farah and her family. She was 12 when she was kidnapped and married. The, the man who took her said that she had consented to the marriage and converted to Islam. Her husband well, treated her, as you can imagine, abused her and kept her chained in an animal shed for months and months and months. When her father went to the police, they just verbally abused her, her ver verbally abused him and threw him out. Christians in Pakistan and sadly in countless other parts of the world, where they're not safe day to day, they live with the fear of this kind of thing. But eternally, eternally, Revelation 14:1 says, you will be safe, none will be lost. And what will they do? What will we do when they make it safely to heaven? Verses 2 to 3. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they, they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 and those who'd been redeemed from the earth. They're singing. A new song is always a celebrating an experience of, of redemption, celebrating an experience of, of God's saving. They're singing with their voices, but it sounds like harps and at the same time rushing waterfall and thunder. Now, I'm not the most musical. I don't hold a note when I sing. I torture it. But even I know that, well, singing doesn't sound like harps and harps don't sound like thunder these are different things what on earth's going on where john is well he's trying to use first century language to describe indescribable heavenly realities and the point is the point is if you trust in jesus then for all the struggles and the difficulties now when you enter the new creation when you taste when you see when you touch when you understand all that god has given you in that creation when you finally grasp what it is that jesus has saved you from there'd just be an explosion of praise an eruption as, with a sound as sweet as harp music and as loud and thunderous as waterfalls and a mighty electrical storm. You know, it's going to be great when we can finally sing again. And you do not want to miss the first service here when we can finally sing. But even that service, even the most passionate praise you have ever experienced on this earth well compared with that heavenly explosion it'll just seem what we had down here is like church from the vicar of dibley it's going to be incredible now verses four to five uh, 
Well, they may have made you wince a little as it describes who these people are who are God's, um, God's, cho- God's chosen 144,000. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They're blameless. So there are no women and no married men in heaven. Hmm? It's just like a picture language. And it's a picture of symbolic purity rather than systemic sexism. Uh, you can see uh, in the end of verse 4, they follow the lamb. It's people who follow Jesus. Uh, no lie was found in their mouths, verse 5. They're blameless. It's about purity. But why use what sounds to us such a sexist image of purity? Only men and only men who stay away from women. Actually, you've got to understand the whole of Revelation. Actually, every time in Revelation God's people are are talked about corporately, it's female. The bride of Christ, most famously. Chapter 21, coming down from heaven. Chapter 12, uh, the woman in the deserts, that's the people of God. And the contrast between uh, corporately the the bride, the pure bride of Christ, who is the people of God, is with, verse 8, Babylon throughout Revelation, the city of Babylon, and pictured here as a woman. Uh, Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. So the picture is, uh, will you be faithful to the people of God, the bride, or will you pursue unfaithfulness, uh, turning away from God uh, figuratively with Babylon. So that's why it's using the imagery of, of staying uh, pure and, and being a virgin. It's not saying it's only men in heaven. Of course not. All the people of God will come from all nations, all tribes, all cultures, men, women, all equally sharing in God's kingdom. Now, what about the comment of first fruits? I mean, there's so much to explain in Revelation, um, but we'll, we'll step back in a minute and see the big picture. But just to run through the first fruits. The whole world belongs to God, but in the Old Testament law, God's people were to devote the first and best portion of their harvest to God as a sacrifice. All humanity belongs to God, but those who trust in Jesus are devoted to God in a particular way, not just his creation but his children. And to be part of that people we see in these verses will be a matter of eternal, enormous joy. That's the first group, those, in, those of joy. How different, how different is the group at the end? How different from the first fruits is the harvest, verses 14 to 16. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested. We'll see in these verses the unbearable destruction of the harvest of judgment. And the one judging, well, if you've read through the whole of Revelation, you'll know it's very similar to the description in chapter 1 of Jesus. One like a son of man with a gold crown on his head. It's saying Jesus is the one who will judge. 
History is not just going to cycle on endlessly. There's, there's not an endless set of multiverses with different versions of history going to different places. No, all reality is heading to one destination, and that is the judgment of Jesus Christ. Verses 17 to 20, I think then, rather than a different judgment, a later judgment, it's just another vision of the same judgment. Another angel came out with a, from the temple of, in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out from the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. The great winepress of God's wrath is a dreadful image in the literal sense of that word. It is an image, not a reality. You don't harvest grapes with a sickle. The Revelation, when it talks about eternal judgment, hell, it uses images. They're not literal. You, hell is described as fire and as darkness. You, it can't be both those things at the same time. The point is, what kind of reality is being described? And the kind of reality here is a judgment that is massive in scope and utterly destructive in effect. Trampled like grapes, and the blood flows for 180 miles. All humanity is heading for the day when we will be separated, either towards unbearable judgment or indescribable joy. And the dividing line, the dividing line is Jesus Christ, the Lamb. Whether we have his name on our heads, verse 1, whether we follow him, verse 4, whether our identity, our trust is in him. C.S. Lewis uh, pictured this uh, powerfully at the end of the final book in the Narnia series. Uh, All the creatures and people of Narnia come before Aslan, the lion, the Christ figure, in the last battle. And he writes, The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into a huge black shadow, and the children never saw them again. But the others looked into the face of Aslan and loved him. Some were very frightened at the same time. And as Eustace came in, a great joy then put everything else out of his head. Revelation 14 tells us that your eternal destiny hinges on your earthly response to Jesus Christ. 
And in the light of that reality and those two destinies, an urgent warning comes out of heaven at the very heart of this passage. Verses 6 to 13, as we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It's the only time the word gospel appears in the book of Revelation. And literally, the word gospel means good news. In the New Testament, it's shorthand for the good news about Jesus, of his death and resurrection, the forgiveness and the life that we can have through him. And here, the gospel takes the form of a universal command in 6 to 7, an announcement of victory in 8, and then a terrible warning in 9 to 11. This is the gospel, not so much of the promise of forgiveness if we turn to Jesus, but the warning of judgment if we don't. The command in six to eight is uh, in six to seven is to do three things. Do you see to to fear God? Verse seven: Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him, who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs. Fear God. Worship Him. Give Him glory. It all amounts to the same thing. Saying. We all build our lives on something, live for something, a career, a relationship, a political cause, or philosophy, a religious belief. And God the Creator says, fear Him, worship Him, live for Him. Then comes the announcement of victory, verse 8. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Final judgment coming on all that is unjust, oppressive, and evil, symbolized throughout Revelation as the great imperial city of Babylon. Human might and power without God. That's great news for all who've suffered oppression, but terrible news for all who have made their lives in Babylon. And here we come to what are undoubtedly, I think, the most sobering, unsettling, and terrifying words in the Bible, if I'm honest. Verses 9 to 11. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Now those who worship the beast or, or bear its mark, like living in Babylon, it's, it's revelation speak for those who ultimately do not trust in Jesus. And if ultimately we, we don't trust in Jesus, we are living for the beast, whether we acknowledge it or not, and we will be judged. The image of judgment changes to drink in verse 10. Those who've drunk the sinful, godless pleasures of Babylon will drink the cup of God's wrathful judgment and suffer eternal torment for their sins against an eternal creator. Now, whatever the reality 
behind the images of those verses. There is no avoiding the fact they describe something utterly unbearable. But for those who endure, verse 12, trusting in Christ in spite of all the hardships that that can bring in this world, where there is the the wonderful promise, verse 13, um, that they will rest. Write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor. for Their deeds will follow them. Those who worship the beast will have no rest, verse 11. Those who worship the lamb share his rest. And end to the, the striving, the endless need to prove myself, to find myself, to, uh, to find somewhere I truly belong. They will rest from their labor. The wearying toil done, but the fruit of their achievements lives on. Judgment will take place, verse 10, in the presence of the Lamb. Do you realize the implication of those words? Jesus is not ashamed to judge. Eternal judgment is not something that's uh, tucked away in a couple of obscure verses that could mean you know, a variety of things, and, and Christians have just made too much from them. Uh, we're not going to get to the end of time and, and find that just as judgment is, is being announced, Jesus turns up and says, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? No, 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 what is this? This is not my idea. This is not happening. No, no, no. Everybody's just coming into heaven. No one talks more about eternal judgment in the Bible, really, than Jesus. He doesn't enjoy the judgment of sinners. But he is a just God, and he will do it. He is the one who will judge. The punishment will take place in the presence of the Lamb. They are words of great dread, but I also find I also find there is some comfort for me in them. How can I say that? I say there's some comfort because if there is to be a judgment, a hell for people, some of whom I love dearly, then it can only be in his hands. Hands that wash the feet of the man who would betray him to death that very night. Hands that to this day bear scars to show the extent of his love for sinful people who hate him. If anyone can be trusted to ensure judgment will be fair, it is only Jesus, the humblest, most compassionate, most forgiving man ever to live. He alone can judge but he will judge. The words of Revelation 14 are words of dread, words of some comfort. They are also words of immense kindness. One of the kindest, most loving things someone has ever said to me is, look out, you idiot! Uh, You know, playing with the radio, drifted out of the lane on a motorway and was in serious danger. How kind to wake me up. And Jesus speaks a very brutal, stern warning to us here. 
But before we get offended and, and fail to engage with what he actually says, it is worth asking ourselves, would I listen if he didn't speak like this? Would I take any other warning seriously? I mean, Jesus, we're told in the Bible again and again, offers forgiveness and new life. And have I listened to those words? Bible shows Jesus offering fulfillment and peace and the, and the purpose and joy of his presence with us throughout our earthly lives. How have I responded to that offer? Perhaps tonight Jesus speaks a very stark warning to you because you've not listened when he's spoken gentle, kind words offering life. And he loves you just far too much to let you drift comfortably into the darkness, the anguish, and the misery of a godless eternity. To those who do trust Jesus, what a reminder of what we've been saved from. This, this judgment is what he saved you from. And surely this is a spur to love other people enough to warn them. Not just to tentatively offer them how much better their life would be if they followed Jesus, but gently, lovingly warning that we do need to turn to Jesus before judgment. But as loving as the warning is, Jesus has done something even more loving than warn us of judgment. He came to earth to take this very judgment for you and for me. On the night before he died on the cross, Matthew records Jesus praying in agony, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what I will, but what you will be done. This cup, the cup of Revelation 14.10, the cup of God's wrath. Jesus suffered hell in your place on the cross so you could join him in paradise for eternity if you only put your trust in him. So trust him tonight. Share the message of his coming justice and look forward to the rest he promises. Let's pray. Father God, we find these uh, uh, unsettling, perhaps even overwhelming words, but we thank you so much that the Lord Jesus warns us of the judgment to come so that we will not experience what is written of here. Help us, we pray, to turn to him and to love others enough to warn them too, for your glory and our eternal good. Amen.